Okay, so this is uh, the uh, Gospel of Mark. Mark from, for beginners. Uh, the um, subtitle is uh, Mark the Urgent Gospel, and I'll explain that in a minute. Lesson number one in this series. And we're going to do a little introduction and background. I, I call this uh, gospel uh, the urgent gospel because uh, a couple of reasons. One, it's the shortest of the four gospel records. Probably was the first one written. And we, we kind of see that uh, because um, if you read Luke, you, you'll see that 350 verses in Luke were taken directly from Mark. Okay? And Luke says he studied different records and he's put a history together. So uh, part of that gathering of information must have come from Mark's uh, gospel. Mark uh, spends absolutely no time whatsoever explaining Jesus' family background. It's amazing. All the other writers, you know, they, they give the birth and the, the prophecies. You know, and John, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and this whole long philosophical thing. You know, Mark jumps right in. Verse one, Jesus, the divine Son of God, period. Okay, we got that out of the way. Let's keep moving on. You know, so he's, he's a man. He's driven. You know what I mean? He's driven. Uh, so it's as if he's kind of in a hurry to begin making a witness for Jesus as soon as possible. So before getting into the text, as always, when we're studying a text of the Bible, I like to do a little bit of background uh, information. Um, there were two uh, major periods in the first century in which the gospel was circulated and it was circulated in two different ways. Uh, first of all, it was uh, circulated what we call the oral period uh, from uh, about 33 to 60 AD. Uh, during this time the gospel was preached orally and transmitted by the word of mouth by the apostles and disciples. You see that in Acts chapter 8 verse 4. Uh, some of Jesus' sayings were circulated in short form, like tracts, you know, you know, the little tra information tracts we give in the racks there. Well, some of His sayings were you know, transmitted like that at the beginning, or they were, ca they were carved. Some of His sayings were carved uh, into bowls, or they were carved into church meeting places on the wall or on the doorposts, so on and so forth. That was the oral period. And then there's the written period, 60 to about 100 AD. As a demand for more permanent records grew, the Gospels were provided, of course, by God to meet this need. The number of eyewitnesses was declining, and so their witness needed to be recorded for future generations. Remember, I've said this before when we were studying Thessalonians, I remember that the early church uh, believed that Jesus was going to return in their lifetime, in their generation. And so they didn't, they, they didn't feel the need you know, to record everything. Why record everything? Why record anything for the next generation? He's coming back in our generation. But as they began to die off and as the apostles you know, were martyred and so on and so forth, they began to see uh, the wisdom of recording this material. Uh, so 60 to about 100 AD, uh, the majority of the Gospels and Epistles were written, copied, and kept. Uh, the Gospel of Mark is one of these texts written between 60 and 70 AD. Some pinpoint it somewhere about 64 uh, AD, which makes it a very early uh, writing. Uh, now we claim that the Bible is inspired or authored by God for several reasons. Again, this is just preps uh, material here. Um, uh, for several reasons. Uh, we've done this in other classes, but I just want to, for the record, 
kind of review this very quickly. Uh, we as Christians claim that the Bible is inspired because the Bible makes this claim of itself. Right? In John 14, uh, 26, Jesus says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So Jesus in advance is saying that what the apostles are going to say in the future, they're receiving from the Spirit that he himself sent. Then um, in uh, Second, uh, Timothy 3.16, of course, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, correction, for training in righteousness. And the key word there is all scripture, all of it, not just some of it, all of it is inscribed, uh, inspired. And then in 2 Peter, again, familiar verses, Peter says, but know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Again, passages all right, where I'm trying to demonstrate that the Bible says of itself that it's inspired. Okay? It isn't someone that came along one day and studied the Bible and said, hmm, after reading the Bible, I've come to the conclusion it must be inspired. Well, you've come to that conclusion because as you're reading through it, it says that of itself. And the choice that you have is to believe that or, or, not, to, or not to believe it. Okay? Um, and then, of course, um, uh, why we believe that it's inspired, as I say, it makes that claim uh, of itself. Another reason we believe that the scriptures are inspired, fulfilled prophecy. Interesting to note that the Bible is the only holy book that contains hundreds of prophecies that were fulfilled. There are plenty of holy books that are studied by scholars and so on and so forth. You know, the holy books of the Hindus and the, uh, and the Muslims and so on and so forth. You know, they all have holy books, but none of them have this feature called pro fulfilled prophecy. None of them have that. They have laws and rules and poetry and descriptions of God and the afterlife and how the world was created. Yes, they, they have those features but they don't have the feature of prophecy and certainly not fulfilled prophecy. I mean, just take one example, for exa uh, for, just take one example to demonstrate that. The prophet Daniel prophesies 600 years ahead of time what the four major world powers would be in succession. I mean, how do you do that? You, you can't do that unless God is doing that. You could, you could make a guess you know, for maybe 20 years down the road, you see some empire beginning to build and you make an educated guess that, oh, they're going to be the next, you know. but 600 years down the road, the fourth world power. And then, of course, the kingdom of God coming during that fourth world power. That's pretty precise stuff. So only the Bible has that. So the only way to have so many fulfilled prophecy as if the book itself has a supernatural source. And as Christians, we believe that God is the source of the Bible. And then one other thing, uh, the quality of the book itself. 66 books written by over 40 different authors, many of whom, many of which didn't know, they didn't know each other. Uh, over a period of 1,600 years, no contradiction, no mistakes, only one story is told, I mean, nowadays, you, know, you get a couple of reporters uh, you know, covering the same story and then they write their stories and you, you <laughs> it's all kinds of contradictions. They, they, they can't you know, agree on the story. 
So this idea here of the, the quality of the book, again, not possible without divine guidance. And I always say, well, if it's man-made, how come man has not created something else like it? With all of the technology that we have today and all of the education that we have today, why haven't we been able to reproduce something like it? We haven't. So there are the reasons as well why we believe the, the scriptures are inspired. You know, the witness of the risen Christ, of course, the impact and longevity of this one book over 2,000 years. But I just mentioned the few uh, basic ones. So when you take all of the reasons together, they can only be explained in one way. They lead to only one logical conclusion, and that is that the Bible is not just an ordinary book or a holy book, but rather it is a text inspired by and produced by a superior being, and we as Christians believe that that superior being is God. Okay, so it's important to lay that foundation because we're studying the book of Mark as an inspired work. Okay. All right, so the Bible was inspired by God, but God used men to record His thoughts and words and the history of His people in their own style and in their own language. And one of these men was John Mark, whose book of Mark is one of these gospels. Now, interestingly, the book of Mark says nothing about its author. You know, Paul, he's, uh, I am Paul. You know, Paul, I'm writing to you. This is my signature. You know, he, he names himself, Peter. But uh, there's no reference to the, to the author here. Um, nothing about its offer, but um, early church uh, tradition points to John Mark, who was the son of Mary, not, of course, uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, another Mary, common Jewish name, uh, who was a wealthy Jewish woman, lived with her family in the city of Jerusalem. She was a friend of the apostles, and it was to her house that Peter went after he was released from jail. Remember, when the angel released Peter from jail, he went to Mary's house. Well, uh, that Mary was, you know, John Mark's mother, Acts 12, 12. John Mark was the cousin of Barnabas, who was very active in the early church, and it was through him that Mark met and began to work with Paul the Apostle. Uh, Mark's association with the Apostles covered more than a 30-year span. So very briefly, I'd like to just kind of cover that again, just to give us some background. So from 30 to 40 AD, uh, his association with the apostles begins with his mother, um, uh, who was, um, uh, he and his mother, among the first converts, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13. Um, her home was used as a meeting place for the apostles and early disciples. We saw that in Acts 12. Some believe that he was the young man who ran away naked in the garden. You know, uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane in Mark chapter 14, you know, when Peter cuts off the ear of Malchus, the, the servant, right? And then uh, the, the guards are taking Jesus away and there's a young man there, we'll read that when we get to that chapter, there's a young man there wrapped in a sheet and the soldiers grab the sheet and it says he ran, the young man ran away naked. Such an obscure, weird thing, in the, you know, just dropped in the middle of the description of Jesus' time in the garden and you know, uh, Judas uh, uh, you know, betraying him and all that drama. And in the middle of this, you have this almost comical scene of a young guy you know, running through the night no, with no clothes on. You know? 
who was that young guy? Well, many scholars believe that young guy was Mark. It's the only self-reference that he makes about himself is there. Otherwise, why, you know, why do it? Um, from 40 to 50 AD, Saul and Barnabas uh, deliver money for the poor in Jerusalem and they take Mark along with them and they go back to Antioch, the jumping off place for the first uh, missionary journey. We read about that in Acts chapter 12, verse 25. Saul and Barnabas take him along on their first missionary journey, Acts 13, kind of a helper, an intern, if you wish. And then we find out that he loses, John Mark loses interest, and he returns to Jerusalem, doesn't complete the trip, and this, of course, causes him to lose favor with Paul, not so much with Barnabas, because they're relatives, you know, but with Paul, and when uh, Paul decides to go back and visit the churches that they had established, Barnabas is game to go with him and wants to bring Mark. And Paul says, no, 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 he abandoned us before. We're not taking this guy with us. And there's the dispute between Paul and Barnabas to the point where they kind of broke off association and Barnabas took his cousin, Mark, and they went one way and Paul took Silas and went off on the next missionary uh, uh, journey. So that's some of the action between 40 and 50 AD. Between 50 and 60 AD, Mark is restored to fellowship with Paul, and Paul calls on him for help, and even commends him to the church as a faithful servant. Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, and Philemon, verses 23 and 24. So a wonderful story there. We can talk about Barnabas, you know, what a, you know, a facilitator he is, what a peacemaker he is. Um, helping to rehabilitate John Mark's reputation in the church. And I like that story that there's Paul and Barnabas and they have a fight and they have a dispute and they, yeah, well you go your way, you know, let's agree to disagree. You know, wonderful lesson for us. You know, Barnabas didn't quit the church, Mark didn't quit the church, they just stopped working with Paul for a time. But then eventually they were reconciled. A very human thing happened and a very human and Christian thing happened to kind of reconcile these brothers together. And then 60 to 70 AD, Paul, near the end of his life, while in prison, mentions Mark as a faithful co-worker, 2 Timothy 4.11. And then later on we know that Mark is associated with Peter the Apostle. He serves as Peter's secretary in recording the events and teachings that Peter has seen and heard during his life as an apostle, 1 Peter chapter 5. Verse 13, so you know, when you're reading Mark, you're reading Peter. Okay? So over 30 years of service, finishing with a text dedicated to him by Peter, which we now refer to as the Gospel of Mark. All right, so let's look at the Gospel itself. We know that Mark was an eyewitness of what happened during Jesus' ministry and the establishment of the early church. Uh, early church historians and writers tell us that he was Peter's secretary, as I said, during the period before Peter's death in Rome, 68 AD. And Mark's work is a record of what Peter said and saw and taught. Uh, Jesus' family, the apostles, and the early church all knew Mark and confirmed his presence and work in the church for over 30 years. Very important so that his work is accepted you know, as legitimate, as inspired. So it means that he was a real person who lived and worked with Jesus and the apostles, not just a mythical figure, a real, a real man. 
early church historians who recorded the persons and the events surrounding the beginning of the Christian age, they all confirmed that this text was written by John Mark. So Papias in 115 AD, Clement 180 AD, Origen 225 AD, all of these early church scholars and fathers in their writings confirm that John Mark was an associate of, uh, of Peter and that he worked with Barnabas and that he did write this thing. This is where we get confirmation for the information that uh, we have about Mark. Um, his text, Gospel of Mark, was circulated while some of the apostles were still alive. 64 AD, not all the apostles had, were, were gone by then, they were still alive. And none of them disputed or criticized uh, its content or its author. At any time, any one of the apostles could have said, you know, this John, well, he's a fake, what he's writing is not good, but they didn't, we had no record of that. Now the reason I say all of this is to show that Mark meets all the requirements to be considered an inspired book and included in the Bible. Because there were lots of books that were circulating at the time about Jesus. You think we only have 27 books that were written in the first century about Jesus Christ? No way. There were many books and articles and periodicals, all kinds of things being circulated about Jesus. So the task for the early church was to draw out which of these books are the ones inspired, are the ones that should go into the canon. The, the word canon means a measure, a correct measure. So the canon of the Bible are those books that measure up. So that's, that's where that term comes from. So um, a lot of books were written, but the criteria to be included in the canon, okay, three, again, not going to spend a whole lot of time on this because this, is, this class is not about you know, this, this, this subject matter, but just as far as Mark is concerned, uh, one, uh, whoever wrote the book had to be an apostle or a disciple of an apostle. So you have Luke, right? He wasn't an apostle, but he was a disciple and an associate of Paul, who was, a, uh, who was an apostle. Mark, he wasn't an apostle, but he was an associate of an apostle, Peter. Okay? Secondly, the work had to be sound doctrinally, historically, authentically. I mean, Mark was a true person. He was the one who wrote it. The church knew this. There was no criticism of it from the apostles or the early teachers about its doctrine or its statements. And then thirdly, it had to be widely circulated in the early churches and accepted as inspired by the churches. Remember I've told you once before in another class that they didn't kind of dig up books that no one ever heard of and say, well, we think this one's inspired. What they did was they examined books that had been circulating for centuries, okay, and had already been accepted by the church for centuries. Those are the ones that they selected to be in the canon. Okay? And Mark was one of those books. So Mark has all of these features, and so we can accept it as an inspired book of the Bible. All right. So let's look at the text itself. The text of Mark is clear. It's very free of abstract statements and concepts like, again, like John, for example, the Gospel of John, which would not appeal to the Roman mind. And Mark's Gospel 
is really directed towards Gentiles. A Jew can read it, but it's really directed towards the Roman mind. It's very direct and to the point, rather. So the book was written while Peter was in Rome working with Roman Christians. So it would make sense that this book you know, material would appeal to Romans. Uh, it seems that Mark's gospel was aimed at people who did not have a Jewish background. That's why there's very little reference to Jewish history. Unlike Matthew, when you read through Matthew, I mean, what are you reading? <laughs> uh, uh, this was done according to the prophet. You know, he's very careful, Matthew is, not to show Jesus saying or doing anything unless he supports what he's saying and doing from some prophet in the Old Testament. Mark, none of that, doesn't even bother. Okay. And of course, Romans uh, were mechanically minded. They wanted their information in summary form, you know, short, sweet, to the point. You know, give me the big picture, just, just give me the big picture. That's, that was their mindset. And so Mark is a historical narrative, meaning Jesus did this and then He went there and He did that and then He came over here and He said this and then after that this happened. Historical narrative that gives a description of Jesus' life and His work and His teachings, His death, His resurrection, with very little background information and very little philosophizing. Mark doesn't spend a lot of time you know, saying, well, when Jesus said this, this is what He meant. No, he just, just the facts. It's like, a, it's like a snapshot, it's like a postcard. <laughs> you know, John's gospel is like a letter you know, to a friend sharing deep thoughts. You know. Mark, postcard. Okay. And Mark's gospel is totally Christ-centered, telling the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and then it just ends, period. Mark is not interested in character analysis. He doesn't dwell on doctrinal development. His book is about action and reaction. And you'll see that as we go through it. A good example of this is that more space is given over to miracles in this book than the other gospels. 18 out of the 35 possible miracles are described in Mark. That's a lot, more than half of all the miracles are jammed into this short, you know, 16 chapters. Of course, when he wrote it, didn't have chapters, but you know, very short book. Also, Mark takes time to, uh, to, to kind of describe the reactions of the people to Jesus. And these are carefully noted. There are over 23 references to people who were either you know, amazed, puzzled, astonished, hostile, he describes the, the reaction that people has. So Mark's gospel is uh, short, to the point, colorful, and powerful. It, it tells the simple story of Jesus without too much background information, and then it ends, boom, with a challenge. Believe and be baptized and be saved. Disbelieve and be condemned. <laughs> That's all there is to it. You know, sometimes you know, we offer the invitation and people say, well, why be so direct? You, know, you, might, you might be offending you know, my sister-in-law who's visiting from Boston or something. You, know, you went and said that if people don't respond, you know, they, they'll be lost. Well, you know, that's how Mark does it. Straight ahead. 
So Marx, you know, from Marx's perspective, the reader is forced to deal with the facts. It's, also, it's, it's almost as if he says, okay, this is Jesus, these are the 18 miracles. Oh yes, by the way, did I mention the resurrection? Okay, so those who believe in are baptized, you people are saved. You, you people who've read this, who disbelieve, too bad, so sad, you're lost. <laughs> Pretty much. So the, the central theme of Mark, very clear. We don't have to have a debate about it. Jesus Christ is the divine Son of God, period. This is the point of the gospel and Mark divides his book into three very simple parts. And here they are. First part, the introduction of the divine Jesus. Chapter one, verses one to 13. Second part, proof of Jesus' divinity through His teachings and His miracles. Chapter one, verse 14, all the way to chapter eight, verse 20. Part number three, proof of His divinity through His death, burial, and resurrection. Chapter eight, excuse me, verse 27 to chapter 16, uh, verse 20. So this is a book that appeals to the practical mind. Each book in the Bible, you know, as I've mentioned before, has a purpose and has a particular audience. You know, Matthew, of course, uh, its purpose is the same always um, to show Jesus as the divine Son of God, but more specifically, Matthew wants to show that Jesus is actually the Messiah according to Jewish prophecy, and he takes great care in building that case. Mark, on the other hand, as I say, not interested in proving anything to the Jews. He's interested in proving that Jesus is the divine Messiah to a, a more Gentile audience. So the um, audience of Mark is the world. Everybody needs to know in no uncertain terms uh, that uh, the Bible declares that Jesus is the divine Son, the Savior of the world. Now you can deny this, you can reject this, but you can never say that Mark doesn't teach this. You know? I say that to people that I, you know, I've studied with all the time. So you don't have to believe what I've just shown you. You don't have to believe it. But what you can't do is you can't deny that this is what it says. So your argument is not with me. Your argument is with the book. I'm just here hopefully to clarify it for you and answer your questions. And then this book of Mark is a great first book to read with a non-Christian. Have you ever wondered, you know, you know, people ask, how do you start a Bible study? What do you do? Where do you, you know, what doctrine do you start with? Don't start with doctrine, start with reading the Bible. You know, most of you know that I have a Catholic background, I grew up Catholic and so on and so forth. You know, uh, Went to Catholic school, taught in Catholic schools, taught religion, monastery, seminary, the whole thing. So I'm really familiar with the Catholic Church and its practices. And people uh, many times ask me, what's the best way to you know, convert or you know, to, to approach someone who's Catholic, who has questions? Do you kind of, you know, they think, well, you know the catechism. So you could kind of go to the catechism and show them, you know, this is wrong, that's wrong. You know, Mary was not ascended into heaven bodily. The assumption of Mary, where is that in the Bible? You know, wrong approach. 
my answer always is just get them to read the Bible, period. Just, just have them read the Bible. And from there will come the questions. Not your questions, their questions. I remember when I first started, you know, I mean, I was on a train on my way to Vancouver and I, I bought a Bible to read on the train. You know, never, had never read it. Imagine, 28 years old, had taught for the Montreal Catholic School Commission, had taught religion, I was the form teacher, blah, blah, blah. Never, imagine teaching a religion class on Christianity, never having read the Bible. It wasn't required. You had to read the syllabus. You know, I had my syllabus. Every teacher had the syllabus. I had that. And I had the catechism, which I knew because that's what I studied as a kid. You know, a memory, the rote memory, the nuns, and later on the Christian brothers. And I don't knock my Catholic education. I had a great education. You really did learn how to read and write and you learned Latin and all that kind of stuff. But you didn't have to read the Bible. And so when I began reading the Bible, then the questions began, wait a minute. This is the religion that I practice for most of my life. And this is the book upon which my religion is supposed to be based and yet there's such a huge contradiction here. So I spent a couple of years just trying to find somebody who could answer my questions about the Bible. And you know, remember when we, you know, we say, you know, Church of Christ, they're the Bible people. I found one of those guys, you know, Jim Metter. He was a Bible guy. He was a preacher. He knew the Bible. So I had my questions lined up for a couple of years that nobody could answer. So I'd ask him a question, he said, okay, good question, and he'd make me repeat, is that your question? Yes, okay, well, then he'd take out his Bible, and he'd go, okay, uh, yeah, okay, uh, go ahead, read that. And I would read. What does it say? Well, it says, blah, 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 blah. Uh, are you sure that's what it says? Yeah, that's, that's what it says. Okay, next question. <laughs> and we would just go question to question. He wasn't out to challenge me. He wasn't trying to talk me out of, you know, what, nearly 30 years of education. He just wanted to answer my questions and show me where the Bible answered the questions that I had. And then when I needed a little more elaboration and so on and so forth, okay, he said, well, you know, you know we came to baptism, for example, I, I couldn't understand, why did they use that word? You know, and okay, well then it took a little bit of background in the Greek, what it means, and so on and so forth. But other than that, his answer was always, let me show you where it says that in the Bible. And he let me learn the Bible, and he allowed me to go at my own pace. So all this to say that if ever you're going to sit down and read the Bible, not necessarily with someone who's a Catholic or anything like that, but just especially with someone who's not churched, you know, doesn't know much the lingo. Church is even a little, little threatening. You know. Mark is a great book to read, short, to the point, lots of miracles, demonstrate. Because the bottom line is, if you don't believe that Jesus is the divine Son of God, the basis, the cornerstone of our religion, well then it doesn't matter what else is there. Right? I mean, the fact that Jesus is the Son of God is the thing that motivates me to try this, do that, obey this, you know, deny this. Because if He's not the Son of God, He has no moral thing over me. If He's just a holy man, right? the Dalai Lama, a holy man, a good man, a morally upright man, an educated man, 
Well, he's got nothing over me. He can't tell me what to do. Right? Okay, so we're going to stop there because I, uh, lesson two, we'll, we start the text and we'll just, we'll, it'll be, so this class is going to be a textual Bible study. Okay. I just wanted to take only one lesson to give the background, a little critical introduction. I think most of you know this already. Next week, Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The thing I'm going to ask you to do if you're going to stay in this class is to um, read ahead. It's not a long book. Read it a couple of times. Get it under your belt so that by the time I read it in class or put it up on the, on the screen, you'll have read that passage. You'll have read that chapter once or twice and you'll know about it. You may even have some questions and in the material that I present, you'll get some answers.